The following narrative was discovered written on the pages of a sodden logbook that had been rolled up and crammed into a plastic bottle. The bottle was found on the shore of Easter Island on November 3rd, 1999, and its contents have since become the subject of serious interest amongst the growing number of academics, scientists, and anthropologists. Some claim it's a hoax, others claim it could be validated, but nobody really knows exactly what happened to the crew of six fishermen aboard the Miranda when it went missing on October 12, 1989. The Sodden Logbook narrative reads as follows. I first noticed the hideous smell of rotting crab shortly after sunrise on the morning of October 7th, 1989. But the crew and I didn't discover the source of the faux tide until nearly dusk. The fog was heavy, the waters were choppy, and for most of the day, St. Matthew's Island lay to the south of the Miranda. But aside from the godforsaken smell, it was an otherwise typical day of fishing on the icy waters of the Bering Sea. The guys on the deck, Harlow, Ethan, Farley, and Smith, had just finished reeling in the last crab pot of the day. Our cargo hold was slammed full of Alaskan king crab, and I would have liked to hightail it back to Dutch Harbor, unload our catch for processing and payment, and trek back out north of Hall Island to catch more crab. But when the drifting ship loomed suddenly out of the orange haze to our starboard bow, it demanded our attention before we could depart, for it was massive, nameless, lightless, and floating aimlessly in the steadily darkening water. From where I sat in the wheelhouse situated above the deck, I picked up the radio and depressed the PTT button. This is Zachary Leone, I said. I'm the captain of the American fishing vessel east of your port side bow. I smell trouble. No pun intended. Is everything okay? I'd like to know. Over. I let off the PTT button, waited, and I received no response. Please respond. Over. No response. No nothing. I say again, this is Captain Z. I tried two or three more times. I tried flipping through the bands, but I never received a response. The ship's navigational computer displayed our latitude and longitude coordinates at 60 degrees 37, 51.9 north, 172 degrees 52, 40.5 west. I jotted them down. And despite the blank spots that are like missing reels in the film of my memory and the lapses I fear have begun to occur in my sanity, I believe the location I logged is correct, for the logbook in which I am currently writing this account is the same logbook in which I transcribed these original coordinates. Once I had done all I could from the wheelhouse, I shrugged into the caribou jacket I kept hanging from the back of the seat and joined the guys on the deck below. The drifting ship smelled worse up close. It was still a little way off to the west, but I could already tell it was at least three or four times larger than the Miranda. 
and I had no idea what it was supposed to be used for at first either. It wasn't of naval design, neither American nor Soviet, and it didn't resemble a cargo or cruise ship. Probably it's a floating factory or an abandoned pirate rig, Ethan said. The guys nodded in agreement with this suggestion, and although I had agreed with him, an abandoned ship required an investigation. If we had glimpsed activity aboard it, we couldn't have legally justified boarding it, but none of us saw even the slightest sign of life aboard it. And the horrible smell of the decaying crab ushering forth from it indicated that something strange and possibly quite terrible had befallen its crew. I returned to the wheelhouse, and once I had brought up the Miranda alongside the drifting ship, we tied off, gathered our gear, and boarded it. Ethan, Farley, and Smith came with me. We carried flashlights, walkie-talkies, extra batteries, a bag containing a few simple tools, and a first aid kit. We stuffed our mouths with chopped garlic to combat the smell and we each carried extra garlic with us in our pockets. I left Harlow in charge of our ship, and from the wheelhouse he would be able to keep in contact with us via walkie-talkie and contact the Coast Guard once it came time to notify them of the details concerning the situation we had encountered. The four of us, Ethan, Farley, Smith, and I, we crossed the deck of the other ship without incident, and tried the first door we came upon. It was unlocked. We opened it, and the faux tide that fell upon us was indescribable. We stuffed more garlic in our mouths. In the beams of our flashlights, the interior corridor before us stretched away into the Stygian darkness. Is somebody there? Farley called. We received no answer, save for the hollow echoes of Farley's voice resounding back to us. Is somebody there? If there was anybody aboard, I feared they weren't doing so well. Anybody in there? In there? I checked in with Harlow via the walkie-talkie. Then we ventured into the corridor and made our way deeper into the foul-smelling confines of the ship. We relied on our flashlights to find our way for there was currently no electrical power aboard the drifting ship. In the gallery, we found plates neatly stacked in the cupboards, a clean sink, and an undisturbed storeroom heaped with food. All of it painted a perfect picture of neatness and order. Whatever had happened, it had not interrupted a meal, for even the tables were wiped clean. These details reminded me of the eerie tales and the proposed theories that surrounded the missing crews of ships like the Mary Celeste, the MV Hoita, the Zabrina, the Bechamo, and a British schooner named simply Jenny. I still remember the way Jenny's captain was allegedly found 17 years later, in a chair with a pen in his hand, dead and frozen, perfectly preserved by the frigid weather of the Antarctic. The final message in his logbook had read, May 4th, 1823. No food for 71 days. I am the only one left alive.
You see, it's the tales of old that haunt sailors and fishermen the most. Storms, monsters, piracy, anything can happen out here in the deep blue. We found evidence of sabotage in the engine room. It had been done in a hasty fashion, as though whoever had done it hadn't care if anybody noticed the damage as long as nobody could fix it. This struck us as extremely odd. In the crew's quarters, we found nothing of interest aside from a length of rope tied to a pipe running an inch or two below the ceiling. The rope was about an inch thick and frayed where it had been cut a foot below where it had been tied off. We didn't know what to make of it at the time. The crew's personal effects were all in order. The bunks were made tight and the linen looked like it would smell clean if we weren't chewing on a mouthful of garlic to combat the hideous smell of rotten crab. We found the captain seated at his desk in his quarters, facing the wall and turned away from us. His head was lulled to the side, and when we spun the chair he was sitting in around so that we could see his face, it became apparent that he had shot himself through the roof of his mouth with a revolver, laying on the blood and brain splattered desk in front of him. I picked up the revolver, wiped it off, and turned it over in my hand. It had a long barrel and a blue steel finish. It was a Colt single action army, also known as the Peacemaker and the gun that won the West. I'd seen this particular make in more than a few Hollywood westerns. You know a lot about guns? Smith asked, looking nervously at the weapon in my hand. No, I said, flipping the cylinder open. It was chambered for 357 Magnum cartridges. Two of the chambers had cartridges in them. The other four were empty. I swung it shut with a flick of the wrist and glanced around the room. One spent cartridge lay on the floor besides the captain's desk. Three others lay in the middle of the room, as though he had fired upon an intruder before retreating to his desk to take his own life. A few questions surfaced in my mind. Why was there no blood by the door? How did the captain miss three times at such a close range? Can I be certain that he missed... And why weren't there any indications of the bullets impacting the door or nearby walls of his quarters? We had stumbled into one hell of a mystery. Ethan had been checking the captain's pockets for identification, but had yet to turn up anything more than the name tag on the captain's shirt, which we could all read plainly for ourselves. Jean Sigorson. This is really weird, Ethan said. Why? Farley asked. Well, the captain's Icelandic. Well, why is that strange? Well, because Iceland is in the Atlantic Ocean, on the other side of North America. I thought about this. There were all kinds of explanations, but the most logical one was that the captain had departed from his country of origin to fish elsewhere. I set the revolver to the dead captain's head jokingly. The man didn't flinch. Where's your logbook? I asked in a demanding tone. The dead man didn't say. Don't make me blow your brains out a second time. 
The dead man didn't seem to care. I set my thumb on the hammer, and a strange thought ran through my mind. Do it. Just do it. Do it. And I cocked it back, as though I was trying to scare the dead man into thinking I was crazy enough to kill him. Again. Whoa, Smith said, grabbing my arm, pulling me back. Yeah, Farley said. Why don't you calm down, Captain? What are you doing? Ethan asked. Relax, guys, I said. I was just kidding around. Where was I? You see, I'm not so sure. Not now that I've had a little time to think about it. I might have been really dead set on blowing another hole in that dead man's head for not telling me what I wanted to know, which was funny because he didn't have the ship's logbook on him, and we never did find it. The whole idea had just sort of slipped unbidden into my mind before I even knew it was there. In hindsight, Smith looked far more creeped out by this incident than both Ethan and Farley. I think he sensed the latent evil laying in wait quite some time before the rest of us did. We headed down to the preceding floor. Unlike the Miranda, the ship didn't have to go to port to unload its catch. It was equipped with everything it needed to process and package its crab at sea, which allowed it to waste less time in nautical transit and stay out at sea for up to two months at a time. The processing floor smelled the worst, for it was packed full of hundreds of thousands of dead, dying, and decaying crabs in various stages of decomposition. They smelled stronger up close. At the other end of the large room, we found a small room heaped to the ceiling with office furniture. The small room led to another larger room, devoid of furniture but stacked full of bodies, each man seemingly dead by his own hand. A blonde-headed woman in a white dress sat among the dead. She didn't acknowledge our presence, and although she had a pulse and was breathing, her green eyes didn't blink, dilate or react to us in any way when we attempted to communicate with her. She could have been as young as 19 or as old as 23. It was hard to tell, for she was covered in blood splatter from head to toe. As far as we could tell, she hadn't been physically injured, and we were eventually forced to conclude that she was suffering from some sort of trauma-induced catatonia. Closer inspection of some of the dead who were dressed in shirts, sweaters, or jackets with name tags on them indicated that the entire crew was of Icelandic descent, and that the ship was probably of the same origin, which both made exactly zero sense. I remember some of their names, but I don't recall all of them. We carried the catatonic woman back to our ship and tried to contact the Coast Guard, but the ship's long-distance radio was on the fritz. We were unsure how to go about cleaning the woman up at first, but Smith had done a combat tour in Granada as a medic before he had joined my crew, and he didn't feel uncomfortable undressing the woman 
and scrubbing off all of the blood. I was just thankful somebody else had volunteered. I told Farley to set a course for Dutch Harbor and sent him to relieve Harlow in the wheelhouse. Then Ethan, Harlow, and I went to our bunks and retired for the evening. I couldn't sleep at first, for the scene of horrible massacre we had discovered remained fresh in my mind. I wondered if it had been carried out in a ritualistic manner, for what purpose, and what the woman had to do with it, if she had anything at all to do with the events that had transpired on that ship. I thought about many things. Ships, seas, crabs, money, faces, men, women, knives, guns, blood, death, legs, thighs. The rest of the page is sodden and illegible. When I awoke on the morning of October 9th, everything was fine. In the nightmare from which I had awakened, something unseen had followed me through the rust-encrusted confines of some great sunken ship. The lighting was dim, and the overall ambiance caused in me a rising sense of impending doom. But by the time I dressed and went up to the deck, the nightmare had already faded too deeply into the background of my thoughts to trouble me. A pink sunrise was spreading across the eastern horizon. The sea had calmed, and we were only 36 hours away from Dutch Harbor. Ethan was in the wheelhouse, Farley and Smith were asleep, and Harlow was in the galley with the woman. She ate if food was placed before her provided somebody helped her get started, although she had to be coaxed into drinking from her cup periodically and then restarted on her food. She possessed greater competence when it came to using the toilet. Smith had dressed her in one of his t-shirts that was far too big for her, a pair of his briefs. Harlow told me Smith said there wasn't anything else aboard the ship that would fit her waist, and that he would have felt weird if he had just left her dressed in a t-shirt, even if it did hang almost to her knees, and a decent pair of warm socks. She didn't look too bad all cleaned up, save for her constant blank stare. Now I spent some time at the sink scrubbing the blood off the clothes that she had been wearing when we had found her, and I eventually managed to get the blood off, it wasn't apparent just how strange these articles were until they were clean. The dress, while it bore a slight resemblance in a nightgown, was more form-fitting and laced up like a corset in the back to what I presumed was an exact fit. The clasps were made of some type of pallid god of which I had never seen before. Everything about it. From the stitched patterns of hideous sea creatures and alien-looking fauna that flowed all over it, to old-timey yet otherworldly aspects, looked custom, handmade, and quite expensive. The undergarments were just as strange. I wasn't even sure what to call them. I'm still not, although I will state that they were extremely conservative for the modern era not bloodied up too badly, and didn't smell bad from the extent of the time that the woman most likely wore them. 
I called Harlow over to examine my findings, but he couldn't offer a plausible explanation to explain the strange clothing the woman had been found wearing. In fact, he pointed out several, even stranger things that Smith had found the night before that I hadn't yet noticed. The backside of the woman's hands and part of her forearms were tattooed with the same designs as the dress, the blue ink clearly done by a talented hand. In addition to the tattoos, she wore two pale gold bracelets, one around each wrist, which appeared to be made of the same type of strange gold-like metal as the clasps on the back of her dress. The two bracelets were form-fitting too tight to remove, and were engraved with the glyphs of a language unknown to me that was too small and complicated for me to decipher, let alone copy. But according to Harlow, that was not even close to the weirdest thing Smith had discovered the night before. For while the woman was sitting at the table staring mindlessly at nothing in particular, Harlow gently pulled her chair around so that she was facing us and pulled up the front of her t-shirt so I could see the hideous scar on her stomach. It was crescent-shaped, like a backwards letter C. It ran from one hip along her pelvis to the other hip before it arched out along her right side and curved again under her ribcage. The scar was raised along the skin, thick and jagged. Harlow told me that Smith had thought the woman may have undergone some sort of emergency surgery on some underdeveloped island, which I thought made sense. But Harlow also told me that he had seen a bizarre documentary concerning the mythology of the bygone people of an ancient island. On the island, the tribal people had built several temples of cyclopean design that modern-day engineers could not agree on the techniques used to construct. One of those temples was dedicated to what a linguist in the documentary had translated into Dragados, Dragados, according to Harlow's recollection of the documentary, had been some sort of guardian who sought to prevent the passage of the ancient demons that lurked in the dark spaces and the walls between the worlds. The people of that ancient island believed that if a woman suffering from demonic possession should conceive a child, then the demon would be able to enter our world by latching on and taking over the mind of their offspring. And because of this belief, the islanders removed the reproductive organs of much of their female population, which, by extension, led to their demise several thousand years before the birth of Christ. Dragados, Harlow explained, had apparently appeared to an elder member of their tribal population in a dream, and taught him just how the procedure should be done. Only a small percent of women actually survived the procedure, for it was carried out without anesthesia or drugs to prevent infection. But the women who did survive were often treated with regard to the demon that was believed to hold sway over them. Now, while this is both 
interesting and also horrible. It didn't explain why the woman sitting before me bore the sign of Dragados, for the hideous practice behind the mark in her flesh, if Harlow was correct, should have been discontinued over 3,000 years ago. She also wasn't of the correct ethnic descent. She was as pale as they come. The rest of the morning passed without incident. The crew and I slept and took turns navigating and babysitting the catatonic woman. We didn't have luck with the radio, though. It was down for the count. Around noon, I encountered Farley in the short hall outside my bunk room. When I asked him what he was doing, he pointed to the woman. She was ten places ahead of him, sleepwalking. Unlike a normal person, she was more active in her sleep than she was awake. It was creepy. The way her waking and sleeping states were reversed. Sometimes, she mumbled things in her sleep, but the language was guttural and foreign to our ears, and we had no idea what she was talking about. Now, we were only 24 hours from Dutch Harbor when Ethan radioed me in the wheelhouse from the mechanical room. Smith had hung himself with a length of rope from one of the overhead pipes. His body turned slowly in a semicircle, from left to right, and back from right to left and so forth, the churning sea keeping his suspended body in a state of perpetual motion. We cut him down. Everybody except for the woman seemed really shook up about it. It affected her no more than anything else did. And then, the Miranda's navigational systems failed two hours later. My compass stopped working, and by the time the sun had set, risen, and set once more, it was apparent that we had missed Dutch Harbor. But if we kept sailing east, I thought we would eventually find the west coast of the lower 48. But when we were still sailing in the middle of open water three days later, well, I began to worry. On the morning of October 13th, according to the ship's navigational computer, we were located at the latitude and longitude coordinates 47 degrees 08, 60 00 south, 26 degrees 42, 59, 99 west. I didn't know what was wrong with the navigational computer. It was impossible to travel that far across the northern Pacific Ocean in such a short span of time and end up in the southern Atlantic Ocean. I mean, it's entirely possible to make such a voyage, but it would entail either utilizing the Panama Canal or sailing around the tip of South America, neither of which we could have done in such a short span of time. However, there are a number of possible explanations for the Miranda's drastic change in location. We could be suffering from hallucinations brought on by exposures to some caustic chemicals aboard the drifting ship, or the Miranda could have traveled through a rip a terror, 
Wormhole, Cosmic Bend, Thin Spot, Rose Window, Flesh Interface, or some other type of currently undiscovered type of non-electric ocean portal. Or the navigational computer could simply be malfunctioning. Considering that the radio was still on the fritz, the third one made the most sense. When it was also getting harder to deny the overall sense of wrongness that seemed to be hanging about the ship. On October 15th, two days later, I found Ethan dead in the mechanical room. He had slit his throat with a pocket knife. Haro, Farley, and I stopped talking soon after his death. We no longer trusted each other. Or, perhaps it was just a ruse for they may have been conspiring to commit mutiny against my authority. It occurred to me on more than one occasion that I might have to resolve to violence to keep my ship in order. It was an interesting thought. Now, I had another nightmare on the night of October 16th, and when I awakened in the morning, I felt quite certain that it could have actually occurred. In the nightmare, I awakened to the noise in the middle of the night and went up to the deck to investigate it. From where I stood on the deck, I could see that something was not quite right in the wheelhouse. The windows were darker than they should have been, and it appeared that some sort of monstrous figure was moving around on the other side of the glass. I was carrying the dead captain's revolver, and I decided to investigate this horror without fear, for I felt powerful and unafraid of the thing in the wheelhouse. However, upon opening the door to the wheelhouse, I only found Harlow and the woman. They were both asleep. Harlow's eyes were closed, and his body was still. The woman's eyes were also closed. She was sitting on his lap at an angle that allowed her to trace the contour of his jaw with one of her fingers. She opened her eyes and almost seemed to look at me and smile. And although I felt suddenly drawn to her by some sort of unseen power, I also felt repulsed, for there was something that struck me as predatory and reptilian about her eyes at that moment. I thought a lot about what Harlow and I had previously discussed during the day, and I found myself wondering several times that if by some circumstance the catatonic woman had been surgically mutated by some practitioner in the same ancient ways practiced in the Temple of Dragados, then what demon had they believed she harbored? On October 17th, I woke in the middle of the night to the woman standing at my bedside and suffered a bad fright before I realized it was only her. I thought I had glimpsed a hideous malformed, piebald creature with a set of inhuman eyes peering down at me, crimson and hateful. But it soon dawned on me that it was only the woman, and I got up, led her to the galley, and made her some oatmeal and bacon. No longer tired, I spent the rest of the night trying to avoid Harlow and Farley. I didn't do anything else. Now, I never saw Harlow again. He may have abandoned ship somehow. He was quite resourceful like that. However, 
Shortly before dawn on the morning of October 23rd, I walked in on Harley doing something to the woman that I do not care to describe in graphic detail. Later, after the sun had risen and set once more, I felt certain Farley was asleep. I crept back to his bunk room with the revolver I had taken from the dead captain of the drifting ship, for Harley had not seen me earlier, and I intended to murder him in his sleep. But he was already dead when I returned. He had amputated his left hand with a knife and bled out. I left disappointed, found the woman in the galley, and helped her into bed. I didn't do anything else. I awoke later that same night, disoriented and frightened, from a horrific nightmare that I could not immediately recall, but that I have since suffered through numerous times. I checked on the woman. She was wide awake in her bunk, which had formerly belonged to Smith, and she was staring at the ceiling when I entered the tiny room, unmoving and motionless, the contour of her body outlined beneath the sheets. I sat down at the edge of her bed and brushed a strand of blonde hair out of her face. She looked so peaceful and lovely that I just couldn't resist. I didn't stay long. The rest of this page is sodden and illegible. It's November 1st, 1989. The crabs have started eating each other. They're dying and rotting now. I don't care about the lost profit. I don't care about the smell. I've been locked away in the tiny office located behind my bunk room since the night after I had found Farley's body. After I checked in on the woman and returned to my bunk room... I felt distressed. I went to my office and shut the door and I locked it. I'm not going back out there. I'm safer here. The woman has knocked on the door twice in the last hour, but mostly she is just pacing around out there, although sometimes she lapses into screaming fits, and on three occasions I've heard her weep and call out in a strange, guttural tongue that seems to be composed of almost entirely vowels. Although it's foreign to my ear, her inflection strikes me at times of that damned soul begging their creator to release them from their hell, even if what follows is some kind of other inescapable hell of an even more permanent nature. She wants me to open the door. I won't. I wish I still had some garlic. Maybe a crucifix or a shotgun. I would send her on her way if I could. But I can't. I'm terrified. The thing out there is trying to coax me out of here. It's not really a woman at all. I had it right the first time. The night I woke with her standing at my bedside. She's a demon wearing a false glamour that she uses to lure weak-minded sailors and fishermen like me. No, I shouldn't say that, for there's another far worse possibility. The woman might be simply a victim of demonic possession, like those ancient islanders believed, scarcely aware of her surroundings, save for the depths of her dreams, 
and she's probably halfway around the world to insanity by now, incapable of independent existence, even if her proper exorcism was arranged on her behalf. The demon. That demon is female, for I have known her intimately in my blood-drenched nightmares over the course of the past several nights. Now, to be honest, I've told a few lies in terms of omission over the course of this account. But by coming clean, I hope to convince anybody who happens across this account in the future to understand and believe that I don't have the same luxury of choice in my nightmares that I have in the waking world. For when she comes to me in the odd hours of the night, she comes to me while I'm sleeping. And I cannot move. And I cannot deny her of what she wants. And then she is on top of me, lowering herself onto me, moving up and down, and her blonde hair bouncing about her bare shoulders, uncovering and recovering her pallid flesh. And then her features begin to melt and change. And she changes from woman to man to beast to abomination to demon to the devil and then to something so strange and so ancient that my mind is incapable of comprehending the act of total annihilation that is being wrought upon my sanity. She may have been Adam's first wife. Lilith, the mother of all vampires, and the first drinker of... She drinks the blood of her victims after they kill themselves, but she first devours their souls. She was ancient when this world was still young, and although the ancient islanders prevented her from crossing completely back over into this world, she will live out the eons with great ease moving from one ship to the next, slipping and sliding through means unknown, in and out of the beyond that connects the shores of this world to an infinite number of incomprehensible sister worlds. She also wants my blood. I won't do it again. I won't. I still have the revolver. The rest of the page is covered in blood splatter 